You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for February 2011. Today's episode is titled, Disabilities and Handicaps. A disability or handicap is generally defined as a condition in which a person cannot perform a task or function as well as the majority of people. There are many types of disabilities, for example, mental disabilities such as dyslexia, emotional disabilities such as phobias, and physical disabilities such as paraplegia. Many people in the workplace suffer from some sort of disability or handicap. The question is how to view and respond to people with disabilities and or handicaps. Everyone is created by God with a purpose. Handicaps and disabilities are not impediments to the purpose of God. Rather, these seeming impairments will be used by God to accomplish His will, many times by unexpected means. The key to unlocking this reality is to trust in the providence and intentionality of God. And now Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, Overcoming Disabilities and Handicaps. Welcome to the Executive Forum. Delighted you're all here. This is a fascinating story. And as with all the Executive Forum stories, it's uh, something you probably have never heard before. What I find in researching these stories is uh, the ones that, um, most of the ones that I find uh, have not been told from a biblical perspective. So you, you may be able to find books with, that contain elements of these stories, but I don't know that you'll find any place where you'll see a biblical spin put on the stories. So I think these are, these are unique. Well, today we want to go back to 1905. It's January 1905, and a little red-headed boy is born. His mother, his name is Melissa. His father is, is Pinckney. Those are common names back there, Pinckney and Melissa Foy. Well, Melissa got sick shortly after she gave birth to the little boy, and three weeks later she died. Uh, at her funeral... Uh, her grief-stricken husband is there with his five children, the youngest of which has just been born three weeks before. He holds up that little boy, and he asks, Who will help me raise my son? Uh, in the crowd is the uh, first cousin of Melissa, the mother that's just died. His name is Finnis. Aren't these great names? <laughs> and Finnis is mar- married to Sarah. Uh, Finnis is 48 years old, Sarah is 24, uh, and they only have one child, and just recently they had a stillborn daughter. So they're in some grief themselves, but they have a heart for this young red-headed boy who I don't even think had a name at that point. So they offered to take the little boy in, and uh, a few months later, in May of, of 1905, they adopted the little boy, and they gave him the name... Other Doris. This is a this is a name festival here. <laughs> Doris was the name of the stillborn daughter that they had. Uh, they were grieving. Uh, I don't know where they got the name Other from, but uh, Other uh, was growing up now in the home of not of his natural parents, but of adopted parents by the name of uh, Finnis and Sarah. Well, things are going fine. Uh, Finnis and Sarah had other children. They wound up having seven children, and uh, Other would be the oldest son. Uh, they did have a daughter that was older than Other, so he was the second oldest child and the oldest son. Things were going fine for young Other until he went to school when he was seven years old. 
he goes into first grade and he discovers very quickly that he can't read. He has what we now know to be a, a condition called dyslexia, where he transposes uh, letters and numbers, etc. Uh, interestingly, that didn't seem to impact his number ability. He could number crunch pretty well, but he could not read. The McGuffey reader, which he used, became his enemy. Uh, the teachers were very hard on him. They thought he was lazy, that he was uh, playing games, that he was doing all kinds of things to create havoc in the class, and so they punished him. They spanked him. They put him in the dunce corner. Does anybody remember the dunce corner? They embarrassed him. Um, they made him repeat first grade. School became a place of shame for him, shame of embarrassment, a place of embarrassment. It became a place where his self-esteem went in the toilet. He was uh, very, very discouraged. School became the place where he was known as the stupid kid, as the dumb kid. If there had been an award for the uh, least likely to succeed, he would have won it. He was viewed as, as, as being the, the most challenging child in the school, and that was pretty much his experience all through his school years. Well, Finnis and Sarah had no idea what to do about this, and the, the school teachers didn't have any idea. And back then, they really didn't understand learning differences at the level that we do today. So let me just read the discussion question to you. Other's a cute, red-headed boy was born on January 12, 1905. He's the fifth child of Melissa and Pinckney Foy. Other's mother died three weeks later. His father abandoned him. Other was adopted by Melissa's first cousin, Finnis, and his wife, Sarah. And let me just add something I forgot to tell you. About two years after Other was adopted by uh, Finnis and Sarah, Pinckney Foy got remarried. And he tried to go to, uh, to Sarah and Finnis and say, would you give me my son back? Of course, they had, they had, they had formally adopted him, so he was a, they were legally their son, and they declined. They said, no, we're not going to give you a son back. We've grown very fond of him. We love him. We care about him. Obviously, that created some family conflict, and uh, Finnis and Sarah wound up moving away because they had lived together close to the Foys, so they moved about 10 miles away, which back in, in 1907 was a long distance. That's way, way before cars were really uh, popular, so you would have been traveling by horse, horse and carriage. So they were 10 miles away was pretty, a pretty good distance, and the telephone was not that, that prominent at that time. So the way they dealt with this family conflict was to put distance between the families. So there's, there's, in these homes, there's these built-in conflict going on that, you know, whether or not Other was conscious of it or not, he was impacted by it. So at seven years old, Other discovered that he could not read, and he was labeled stupid by his teachers and fellow students. His parents don't know what to do. By 1921, Other is 16. His life has been marred with failure and hopelessness. Okay, if you were his parents in 1921 and only knew what they knew then, you can't go by what you know today, you only knew what they knew then, and they knew nothing about dyslexia and learning differences. What would you do to help Other? Finnis was a, a man of biblical dimensions. He really thought biblically. What he believed strongly in was the providence of God. That was a huge theme in their home. They did not view Other as a mistake. 
They didn't view him as an outcast. They didn't view him as a failure. Yes, he was labeled stupid, and yes, he was labeled dumb, and yes, he couldn't do what everybody else could do, but they knew that God had a plan and purpose. Now, see, that's a huge thing to recognize. Now, today, parents, you know, they have a child like Other, they would be the helicopter moms, you know, hovering over the child, being sure that their self-esteem is never damaged, you know, that... No one ever, you know, says anything unkind to the child. And the teacher never does anything to discipline the child. They just, they've just become this fortress of overprotection. That kind of thing, I hope you know, doesn't work. What works is faith. What, what Finnis and Sarah had was faith that God had a plan and a purpose. And they were committed to trust God with their son. You know, I think that's a step that every parent has to get to with their child. doesn't matter who they are, where they are. There's going to be some scary time in the child of that life, and the parent's going to have to say, I'm going to trust God with my child. Well, that's what they did. They trusted the Lord with this child. And they, while acknowledging all of the issues that are there and acknowledging they didn't understand what to do, they knew God knew exactly what to do, and we will... We will continue to live our lives as we feel we're supposed to before God. Now, that was a really critical step. See, a lot of parents will, will change, will adjust, will adapt. Well, we're never going to have guests in the home, or we're never going to do this, or we're never going to do that. And all, it's all about, about seemingly protecting this child that's got these, these issues. But they said, no, we're going to live our life. And part of living their life was they had frequent visitors in their home. These were guests that would come in and uh, spend weeks there. You see, this was a home that at their dining room table was not just the family. It would be friends. It may be strangers. It may be hobos. It may be, you know, fellow believers. It may be people they know very little about. But they had a large table, and every meal, you never knew who was going to be there. Because this home was a home that was open to hospitality. It was a home that was reaching out because this man, Finnis, of biblical dimensions, he reached far beyond just his family. He was a very strong entrepreneur. He had a thousand-acre farm in Dixon. When he decided to move away from the foys, his effort was to minimize the conflict between the families. I don't wish to have a fight with you. We're not going to give you oath or back. So the best thing for us to do is just separate so we don't see each other very often. Hopefully that'll, that'll minimize the conflict here. Whether that was wise or not is another question, but that's what he did. Well, when he went to McDonald, Mississippi, he chose McDonald, Mississippi because the railroad had just come through, and he knew that would be a place of commerce, and he was a real entrepreneurial kind of guy. So he starts six companies, six companies in McDonald. He has the general store. He's got a lumber yard. He's got a lumber mill, a grist mill, a cotton gin, and a dairy farm in addition to his thousand-acre farm 10 miles away in Dixon. So this man was an entrepreneur, and he was always, always looking for new business opportunities. He became very wealthy. But by the way, wealth was never the thing for him. It was never the issue. And in the end, he used all of his wealth for purposes that I'll share with you in a minute. But this was a man that was incredibly committed to the Lord. And so he and his wife had this practice of hospitality. And one time they, uh, they hosted a gentleman who was a door-to-door -door salesman. 
And this man sold books. And uh, so during the day, he would go out and knock on doors and make his pitch and sell his books and come back at night. And at dinner, he would uh, share with the family his experiences that day, what it was like going door to door selling books. Well, Other's listening to this and saying, well, that's pretty cool. This sounds like kind of fun, exciting. And so he goes to his mom and he says, Mom, uh, I'd like to try that. Now, the, the protective instinct of Sarah kind of kicked in and says, I don't think you can do that, son. You know, well, Other was a very strong personality. He would not be denied. So he kept pestering his mom and his dad about doing this. Finally, one day, the mom says, okay, Other, let me get this straight. Uh, you want to go and you want to sell books all summer. Is that what you want to do? Yes. So you want to support yourself doing that? Yes, that's what I want to do. She said, well, you're going to have to have some seed money to get started, so how much do you need? He said, Mom, I've already figured it out. See, he was good at mathematics. I need $30. Mom says, okay, here it is. Now, $30 back then was a lot of money. You know, do you understand that, that somebody might make a dollar a day? You know, that may be a pretty good wage. So handing $30 to him was like handing him maybe five, six, seven, eight hundred dollars today, something like that. So she hands him the money, just like the prodigal father did with the prodigal son. It's a similar kind of thing. Now, she didn't view him as a prodigal, but the point is she recognized he needed to go out and try this. Finnis agreed he needed to try this. They thought he'd be back maybe in a couple weeks after he ran through his money. He didn't come back. He was gone all summer into the fall. When he finally came back, you know, they hadn't seen him for three or four months. He shares with them what happened. He was able to go out and make enough money to support himself all summer. And what he discovered from that is two things. Number one, the stuttering, which is part of the dyslexia that he was so concerned about, he mastered it. When he got in front of people to talk to them about his product, he stuttered no more. It was really interesting. He didn't fully understand that, and they didn't either, but they saw that that was the reality. His stuttering was mastered through the sales process. The other thing that he discovered was he absolutely loved doing it. And people responded well to him. He had a lot of favor to do it. So this became a critical lesson for him. This is something he fell back on all of his life was he could sell, particularly he could sell books. He knew he could do that. And so that lesson came because Finnis and Sarah were willing to trust God with their son and continue to live life the way they were supposed to live it. They didn't make this huge adjustment where, where now we've got to deal with this handicapped child. That's what we most, most parents do today. Part of living life before the Lord is trusting God with your son or your daughter. That was a powerful lesson that he learned. Other graduated from high school in 1922. And the way he got through school was his brother, his younger brother, his name was A.D. A.D. was not A.D. Okay? Uh, he didn't have attention deficit disorder. A.D. read to Other. So basically because Other was held back in school, they wound up in the same grade. And so A.D. was in all of his classes with him. So all the homework assignments and everything, A.D. was able to read the author. And so that's how he got through school. When he got through school, believe it or not, he went to college. And that sounds really strange. But, you know, his parents were supportive. They knew that if God wanted him to go to college, there would be a way. 
And even though in the natural it didn't look like, how could this work? They knew that God would make a way for their son. They were there to support and guide their son into the way of the Lord. So he went to Southern University up near Chattanooga. He starts out, he wanted to be a physician. Well, pretty quickly he figured out that's not going to work because you need to be able to read well, and you've got to read a lot as a physician. So he abandoned that. So he starts looking at what he does well, science, mathematics, woodworking. So he begins to do that. His father required him to work his way through school. His father could have paid for school. father was a wealthy man by then. But his father said, no, no, you need to do this. So his father had him work. So he worked during the summers selling books. And in the school year, he discovered that he could run a business in his dorm room. You guys thought Michael Dell's the only person that did that. Well, he actually ran about four or five businesses in his dorm room. You see, his mother had taught him how to press pants. So he ran a cleaning business. Okay? She had also taught him how, taught him how to sew. So he ran, ran a mending business. He mended clothes. He also discovered that, uh, you know, people needed the jewelry fixed. He was pretty good with his hands, so he could fix the jewelry. And then he discovered that people needed money. But they didn't have money. They just had assets. So he made a deal with a local pawn shop, and he served as, a, as kind of the liaison with a pawn shop and got people loans, and uh, they would put up their merchandise for collateral. So he do, do, was doing all this from his dorm room while he's going to school. Well, this is, that's kind of cool. He's able to make, make some money there, but he's running into a problem. A.D. was at school with him, but A.D. did not want to go on the same career path that he wanted to go on. So they're not in the same classes anymore. So now Other's got all the struggle of, well, I've got to find somebody to read to me, somebody to help me. Well, finally he was able to find some people. And after about five, six years in college, he got through. In 1928, he graduated from college, got a bachelor's degree from Southern University, just northeast of Chattanooga. So that's really cool, and what the bonus of all that was is he found his future wife. Her name was Ruth. So Other and Ruth were married in August of 1928, and they started what would be a 61-year marriage, which would produce four children. And not only were they marriage partners, but they became business partners. But first, there's an adventure that they have to go through together. So the first part of the adventure is... Because of um, his selling prowess, the company he sold books for uh, recognized this guy really has some good skill selling. Why don't we hire him? He's just got his degree, so they hired him and put him to work in the Atlanta office of their publishing company. Well, he walked straight into a very interesting situation called nepotism. And in this situation, the manager of that office had his son and daughter working for him, but he required nothing from the son and daughter, and he expected Other to do his work and the work of his son and daughter. Well, that was not going to go well for Other, so that lasted about a year, and he saw that nepotism like that was not a good scenario. I'm out of here. So he winds up moving back home temporarily while he's trying to get his bearings. Well, in the meantime, his wife gets pregnant, and the stock market crashes. So things are going from bad to worse. Other is out of work. He's going deep in debt. His father wants, is willing to let him work around the farm, but he and his wife really don't want to stay there. So they start looking around, and they found an opportunity to go to work at an institution up in North Carolina. And there, here's the offer. It's free housing and $25 per month. That was the deal. So 
They took it. And believe it or not, they were able to save up some money. They actually had some money in the bank up until 1932 when the bank failed. And so now they lost all their savings. And the job there at the school was kind of not going very well, so he began looking around, and he tried a number of different odd jobs. He sold cars. He ran a sanitarium. He ran a farm for an estate. Uh, just did odds and ends that nothing really worked out very well. In the midst of all this, he has another child. He has no money to pay the doctor, so he gives the doctor a cow. So, you know, it's just been a, it's a rough road. Uh, about four or five years into this marriage, uh, Ruth is beginning to question her judgment. And her initial response to Other when Other started trying to date her in college was no, but one of the teachers said to Ruth, if you marry this man, don't worry, you won't have to worry about money. And Ruth is reflecting back on that. Now she's about five or six years into this marriage, and she said, all I've done is worry about money. <laughs> so it's, it's not a good time, at least financially. But it's a really good time in the Lord because they're learning some valuable lessons. So in the early part of uh, 1934, Other's looking for work. And so he happens to see a guy delivering snack cakes uh, to some, some stores. You know, back then they basically had general stores. They didn't really have the super stores we have of today. So he watched this guy walk in there, and he'd go in there, and he'd put the merchandise in the, uh, in the display, and he'd take out the out-of-date merchandise. And so he started talking to the guy, found out, you know, who the company was that made it, et cetera, et cetera. And he thought, you know, I, look, I can sell. I know I can sell. I can sell books. I can sell snack cakes. So he found out where the bakery was. He goes down to Spartanburg, South Carolina, and he uses his sales skills, which he's got great sales skills, and he sells his way into a job. And so he said, look, the name of the company was Becker Bakery, and they sold a cake called the Virginia Dare Snack Cake, which I don't think is made anymore. It's a very unusual kind of little snack cake. But... He was given the Chattanooga distributorship because that distributor there was failing. He was about to go bust, and uh, Becker was saying, we really want a presence at Chattanooga, but we don't have anybody to do it, so why don't you go up there and do that? So he went up there and took over that distributorship, and everything's rocking along. He turns it around. He gets it profitable, and uh, within, within a year, he's able to make enough money to pay off all of his debts, and for the first time in their marriage, they're sitting there, out of debt. And Ruth is saying, this feels pretty good. You know, I like this. Well, Other was never satisfied. He always wanted to go a step beyond. And so he was looking for a way to build his business. So what happened next was, was he saw a product line out there called Jack's Cookies. And Jack's Cookies had three different cookies. They had oatmeal cookie, raisin cookies, and vanilla cookies. They sold for a penny apiece. Okay? You can get rich selling those, you can tell. He looked at that and he said, you know, those are different from Virginia Dare. Maybe I should uh, look at bringing that product line into my offering. So he calls Becker up and says, look, uh, I'd like to expand my product line. I've, you've given me a fixed territory. I'm covering it very well. I've pretty well maxed out what I can do with your product. But I can add these, this cookie line to what I'm doing and expand my business and still serve you well. And they said, great, do it. So he adds the cookie line to his business. So every Monday morning, he took his, his Willis Whippet. Does anybody know what a Willis Whippet is? Okay, some of you know what a Whippet is. He took the back seat out of the Whippet and turned it into a delivery vehicle, 
and he loaded it up with Virginia, Virginia Dare snack cakes and Jack's cookies, and he started driving around to the various stores and selling his wares. Well, that went along fine, and then Jack's cookie got into trouble. The owner of Jack's cookie happened to be a college classmate. And Other, you know, went to talk to him, says, what's going on here? He said, well, I'm struggling. I may have to go out of business. Uh, would you like to buy me out? Other says, that's an interesting proposition. So he goes to talk to Sarah. Now, Sarah, you need to understand, excuse me, Ruth, she's not inclined to do this because she's real happy being out of debt. But he's the consummate salesman, so he talks his wife into doing this. And so they buy Jack's cookies. And things are going well. Other's continuing to focus on a distribution business. Ruth actually comes in to run the cookie business. And turns out she's very skilled at manage, managing businesses. So things are going just fine. And then Other says, you know, we need to grow and we don't have the capital to grow. But guess what? Your dad, he's been very successful in what he's done. He's saved up a lot of money. What if we bring him in as a partner and then we'll use some of his capital to grow? That sounded like a really good idea. And so that's what they did. They brought in Simon King as a 50-50-50 partner. He didn't understand unequal yoking. He needed the Beyond Babel model badly, but he didn't have it. So he brought him in, and pretty soon they had an unequal yoke situation because Simon does not want to risk anymore. He doesn't want to go into any more debt in the midst of a depression. He wants just a, a really small bakery that's profitable. Other wants to build it. And so when they ran into this conflict... They, they knew they couldn't, they couldn't continue. So it was a very, very hard decision that Other had to make and then to sell to his wife, Ruth. And the decision was, we've got to split. And so they literally split the cash in the bank. And um, Simon kept the bakery there in, in Chattanooga. And in the meantime, the, the company had acquired a small bakery in North Carolina so Other and Ruth go to North Carolina, take that small bakery, move it to Charlotte, and they start another Jack's Cookie plant in Charlotte now that they fully own by themselves. Well, that sounds all fine and dandy, except they took the cash they had to go buy a new oven. Well, back then, transportation was uh, not nearly as sophisticated as it is now. The oven was built in Cincinnati, so Other hires a truck and a driver to go get it. Truck and driver get it, and they, they're driving back to Charlotte. And it's icy in wintertime. Well, the truck loses control, turns over, and virtually destroys the oven. There's no insurance. So Other winds up having to spend the balance of his cash to get the, the oven repaired and get it actually in to Charlotte. This delays everything two or three months. So here they are again. Basically, they exhausted their capital. They're out of money, and they're not in business yet. So... Ruth winds up actually selling cookies door to door, selling cookies she got from her own father, who's making them in Chattanooga, shipping them up to her, and she's selling them door to door just to pay the grocery bill. Tough, tough time, but they made it through. They were able to get the business going, up and going, and about, um, about by, by the late 40s, right after World War II, they really had the business in pretty good shape. By then, Other is in his uh, early 40s, and they decide, well, we've got to build a new plant. This plant, we're outgrowing this plant. So they, they start out trying to build a new plant. Now, what they did is they just launched into building the plant before they had their financing. Now, most of you, if you've been around business, know you don't do things like that. That's not smart. Because lenders don't like to loan on projects in progress. They loan before the project starts. Well, 
Lothar just started out racing now and building this project. Then he said, well, I don't have enough cash. I need some money. So he goes to the banks. The banks say, no, we're not going to do it for two reasons. One, you've already started. And one, we think there's a cloud on the title of your property. They thought the rail a railroad had a right-of-way on the property, and they had to get that cleared up. Well, it took a while, but they finally got that cleared up, and they, they were able then to find the predecessor of the SBA, which came out of the Roosevelt policies of the 30s, loaned them $450,000, and they were able to finish this $500,000 plant. Well, that was 1948 or so when they got the plant finished, 47, I believe. And by then, Other is getting really tired. He is getting so tired, he's getting sick. In fact, he has stomach ulcers. So at uh, 43 years of age, he decides he needs to retire. And so he retires so he can have you know, medical care. He had to have surgery on his stomach to deal with his ulcers. And so he needed somebody to run Jack's Cookies in Charlotte. So he winds up entering into a deal with a guy named Herman Lay. Y'all heard of Herman Lay? Yeah, thought you might have heard of Herman Lay. Well, Herman Lay entered into a three-year deal. It was a basically a management deal with an option to buy. So I'm going to come in and run your business for three years, and I have an option to buy it if I want to. Well, two years into it, Herman wanted out. And so by then, Other had been through his surgery, had gotten better. He was... He was doing pretty well. This He was 45 then. He was thinking, well, maybe I can get back on the saddle. So he gets back on the saddle. Well, Herman's driven the company into the ditch. Uh, the debt's gone through the roof. The, the business is going in the tank. Well, Other was able to get the sales turned around, get the negative cash flow stopped, but he still had a mountain of debt, and he didn't know what to do with this. So late in, the, late in 1950, uh, Three guys come to him who also make Jack's cookies. You can see how, what things were like way before all the, the laws we have today to protect uh, you know, copyrights and intellectual property and all that stuff. They didn't have any of that. So they were making Jack's cookies in Tampa and, and Mobile and different places. And so these guys were upset at Other because he was coming into their territory selling Jack's cookies. So they decided they had two choices. They knew he was financially weak, so they could sue him probably put him out of business that way, and, or they could offer to buy an interest in him. They would want controlling interest, of course. And at least they did a little biblical thinking here. They decided since, since this guy is a brother in the Lord, maybe we shouldn't sue him. So they decided not to sue him. They offered him $100,000 for 51% of the company. He, he took it, and they wound up then uh, being control of the company. And what they did is they started changing things. And so when they started changing things, Other couldn't handle it. So he quits. So here is Other now. It's 1951. You know, he's uh, 46 years old. He's back on the street again, out of work, you know, starting all over again. Now, that's pretty tough for anybody. But you know something? Other always believed in the providence of God. Everything he did was about trusting that God would have a plan, and he would show him that plan. Even when he made mistakes, he knew that God was always there. Shortly after he, uh, he resigned, uh, he got a call from Cecil King. Now, Cecil King is his brother-in-law, his wife, Ruth's brother. Cecil King had bought the bakery in Chattanooga from his father, Simon. And Cecil was operating the bakery, but Cecil was sick. And furthermore, the sales manager and five key salespeople had quit all unexpectedly, and so now Cecil's in a lurch. 
So Cecil calls up Othar and says, Othar, would you come and be my sales manager? Well, Othar thought about it for a while and then decided to go. So he goes, and he went with the expectation that God was going to show him how this was going to work out and how to get back into an ownership position, because he knew he was supposed to be an owner. So he goes back. He, he starts in about uh, May of 1951. By July, Cecil is so sick that he can't even work, so Othar's made general manager. A year later, Cecil is so sick that he decides, I need to sell out. So he sells out to Othar for $50,000. And the deal is basically, put me, give me 1000 now, and you pay me principal and interest until you pay for half of what you owe me. And once you've paid for half of it, I'm going to turn the stock over to you. So basically, it's kind of like a contract you know, for, uh, for the ownership of the stock. And so Othar was able then to acquire the very company that he had acquired some 20 years before now, he acquired it back. So it was, a, it was a victory in that sense, but still he's got to get this company turned around and going. He had a lot of things that were wrong with this company. One of the things that was wrong was the product offering. You see, back in the 30s, Othar had come up with a really interesting product. He not only was skilled at selling, but he was skilled at marketing and also at streamlining operations. Well, this product he came up, came up with was, was an oatmeal sandwich cookie. And the, the oatmeal cookies back in those days were hard cookies. But he figured, now, you know, I think a soft cookie would be better. So he worked with a baker and developed this soft cookie idea. And they literally took two soft cookies, put some icing in between, put them together, and you had an oatmeal sandwich cookie that you could sell for a nickel versus an oatmeal cookie you could sell for a penny. So that turned out to be a fabulous success, and he had been producing that cookie for 20 years. So when he gets back in control of Jack's Cookies of Chattanooga, the first thing he wants to do is get that cookie on the product line. So he's able to begin to eliminate things. They were making large pies. They eliminated that. They were making layer cakes. They eliminated that. And they started bringing in things like the oatmeal sandwich cookie, the raisin sandwich cookie, etc. And so he began to change the product line and began to build a business, extended the business, got more and more distributors involved. And pretty soon, uh, they took a business that was doing 187000 annually in 1951 and took it to a million dollars in 1955. Now, they were still in the same facility that Othar had, had uh, procured back in 1936 when he owned the company. He had actually moved the company from where he had bought, when it was bought it, it was in a small rental facility. He moved it to a little larger rental facility, and it had been operating in that, that facility. It was called the Dodd Street Facility for 20 years. And now that facility was doing fine if you're doing two or $300,000 worth of business, but a million dollars worth of business, it isn't going to cut it. So he needs a new facility, but he's strapped for cash. He's just bought this company. He's having to fund all this growth. So what does he do? Well, the college had one of its buildings burned down. This is the college where he, went to co where he went to school. It was about 20 miles away. And so the college comes to him and says, Hey, Othar, we really appreciate the fact that you are you're providing jobs for our students. It's really a wonderful thing. So here's what we want you to do. We will build you a bakery, and we'll lease it to you. You just pay us lease payments, and you provide jobs for our students. And so Othar and Ruth kicked it around. They finally agreed to the deal. And in 1957, a 50,000-square-foot plant was opened there in, on, on the college campus that became the McKee Bakery. You see, up until that time, it had been the King Bakery. 
there had never been a time when the name McKee had been on any bakery. See, Ulther's last name was McKee. And you may, if you're familiar with the McKee name at all, you probably don't recognize the name Ulther because he really didn't go by Ulther. He went by the initials of his name, O.D. His name was O.D. McKee. And so now O.D. and Ruth, for the first time, had their name on a bakery. And this bakery was was really growing and blossoming, and people were growing. This was an incredible place. Uh, if you're familiar at all with the McKee Bakery, you know it's a place that there were people are really blessed, but people are honored. You might go in the bakery, and you might hear them singing. They'll be singing hymns, Christian songs, because this is a place where the Lord is honored in everything that goes on. Well, 1960 rolled around, and the company's looking for a way to expand the business, and one of Other's sons, one of O.D.'s sons, had an idea. He said, you know, what we need to do is package some of our snack cakes into, into a family pack. And instead of selling, selling these things for like a nickel, a nickel a snack cake, we put, them, put 12 together and we sell them for 49 cents. And they thought, hey, that's a great idea. And so they began to brainstorm how to do that. And uh, they had a packaging guy come in by the name of Bob Mosher. And Bob walks in, he's talking to O.D., and he says, uh, you know, what you need, O.D., is you've got to build a brand. You know, Jack's Cookies, I mean, everybody's, you know, dog is making Jack's Cookies. There's nothing distinctive about that. You need a distinct brand. And uh, you need a, a creative logo. And so Bob Mosher pulls out a package of socks. And, and on this package of socks, it's got a cute little logo, and it says, Little Debbie Socks. And so they're looking at these things and say, well, that's kind of cute. You kind of remember the name and you kind of remember the logo and everything. And Bob says, look, O.D., what's the name of your grandchildren? He says, well, well, there's, there's, there's Catherine and Linda and John and, and Debbie. Debbie, that's it. Give me a picture of Debbie. So Ruth just happened to get to have a picture of Debbie. Debbie was four years old. So she brings it in, and Bob says, just give me a couple of days. I'm going to go to my art department. I'll come back and show you some ideas. So a few days later, he comes up, comes back with this incredible logo and this little Debbie insignia, and when they saw it, they knew that was it. So from then on, the products at McKee Bank Bakery all bore the little Debbie trademark and logo. Ruth and O.D., built an incredible company. They built a company that in many ways was exemplary of biblical principles. Probably there's no better testimony than my own experience with them. The way I found this story was I was talking to a client back in December. And uh, I, was, I was telling him, I'm looking for my next executive forum story. And, and um, he said, well, you know, I'm here at this plant in Arkansas. I said, really? He said, yeah. He says, this is an incredible plant. I said, tell me about it. He says, everybody loves to work here. I said, really? Yeah, the, pe the morale is incredible. The people love it. They're always smiling. He says, and I don't ever leave here and they, without them giving me something. They always give me product. And they treat me with such respect. So a lot of places I go, and he sells uh, conveying equipment. He says, a lot of places I go, you know, I'm just a vendor, and they, you know, I'm just kind of something they have to put up with. But here, they, they, they value me. They care about me. They want to see me. They want to talk to me. They, they really honor me. And so I said, I need to know about this company. 
Well, where he was was in plant number three of the McKee Bakery in Gentry, Arkansas. That plant had been built in 1982. They now have four plants nationwide. They are the, the largest snack cake producer in the United States. They have over 50% of the market. And in 2005, they hit a billion dollars in sales. This is what happens when you build organizations based on biblical principles. All through this is one biblical principle after another. O.D. and Ruth followed, probably none greater. In fact, they would tell you if they were here, the greatest key to their success was their giving. They think it opened the door for everything. They gave 30% of their pre-tax income to churches and to Christian education. That was a practice they adopted early on. They did it all of the life of O.D. and Ruth McKee. And they would tell you without hesitation, at least that's what I've read, they would tell you that was the key. It was us doing that. We were saying to the Lord, we would be nothing without you. And we're honoring you with this, this return of these assets. So that's how they live. But probably the most important story here is not O.D. and Ruth. But it's Phineas and Sarah. O.D. would never have been what he became without Phineas and Sarah. You see, we can't be who we are called to be. We can't do what we're called to do without godly parenting. Parents that believe in the providence of God and trust God with their children, and parents that believe in their children and are willing to take a risk with their children. They're willing to ride with them, to go with them, to help them in every way. You see, when... When Phineas died in 1936, he died essentially broke. He went from the, the pinnacle in 1921 to broke in 1936. What he did was he traded up. He traded physical wealth for spiritual wealth because he spent the last 14 years of his life investing in educating people. That's all that mattered to him was training and educating people in a biblical worldview of living. And he was willing to spend every dime to do it. That's, what, that's the great story here. That's why the Little Debbies and McKee Bakery exist. It's because of Phineas and Sarah. O.D. and Ruth are just the byproducts of godly parents. Well, you and I can do that too. If we will we'll parent our natural children and spiritual children the way Phineas and, and Sarah did, we will produce people like O.D. and Ruth who do what they're called to do and do it at dimensions that it's hard for us to possibly fathom. This is the family statement. The McKee family acknowledges the providence of God in our continued success. That is on their website. Their key philosophy is this. And O.D. was actually discovered this when his wife read to him a biography of Thomas Edison and he heard this quote. And the quote was, a better way begins with me. A better way begins with me. This is about taking responsibility and looking for solutions and being a problem solver, not an excuse maker. Their key values are this. Number one, giving. They gave 30% of their pre-tax income to Christian causes. Number two, people. People need to know that they're valued. They're trusted to make decisions. People need to enjoy their work. They need to strive for personal growth. They need to work together as a team. They valued integrity, responsibility, quality, productivity, and innovation. 
And I think if you look at the McKee Bakery, that's what you're going to find today, those things. All of these are biblical characteristics, biblical traits that undoubtedly came from the lips of Finnis McKee, the man of biblical dimensions that sowed that seed into his son, O.D., who looked like he would be nothing. And he wound up getting released to an incredible destiny of God. Well, that could happen to you. It can happen to your children. So may God grant you the grace to be that kind of parent, a parent of biblical dimensions. 